I'm Jim Brown, your Bible teacher here at Grace and Truth Ministries. I am teaching on the sovereignty of God. Sovereign means above all things. God is above all the good and all the evil. The Bible says we have obtained an inheritance. This is in Ephesians 1.11. Being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. It doesn't say He works all good things. He works everything after the counsel. Isaiah 46 and 10 says that God has declared the end, the end of everything in the world from the beginning. And from ancient times, everything, if we're living right here, everything that's not yet done, the good and the evil, he's declared everything that's not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's Isaiah 46 and 10. God's going to do everything he wants to do. The devil is nothing but a servant of God. Then you've got Ecclesiastes, which is one of my favorite verses on this. Ecclesiastes 3.14 I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Forever is not our word forever. It's the word olam. O-W-L-A-M What that means, it always has been and it always will be. So everything that God is doing is from forever to forever. It's from beginning to end. And Satan is not doing anything that God does not want him to do. <clears throat> There's three particular places I want to bring out to you today. Plus some more things. I did this the other day. I told you I preached on how God said, I will not pity. I will kill people. God says, I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. If anybody dies, you see Jesus holding the keys of death and hell in Revelation, the first chapter. So if anybody dies, that's Jesus there. I tell the story. At one time when I was out on the road, I was traveling with uh, one of the Blackwood groups. And we came up outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, and we saw the flashlight, the lights ahead were flashing of the ambulances. And we got out, me and Ronnie Blackwood went up and walked around this car. Everybody was quiet, hushed. And we walked around this, this truck. It had been, it was a flatbed truck, and it had been hauling cantaloupes. And there was a boy inside, a teenager. He was dead. And there was two little kids, and they were set there with him, and they were dead. And there was this Cadillac that had come up the off-ramp and ran head-on into them. We wanted to look in the car, and there were six people dead in the car, three in the back seat, three in the front seat. And somebody said, God has been out here tonight. I said, that's exactly right. The Lord had visited the highway that night. I've never seen anything like that before or since. 
I said, this is something that God did, and that's the truth. Now, <clears throat> I got three places I really want to talk to you about in the Bible about God creating evil. First of all, everybody, when you quote Isaiah 46, uh, 45 and 7, Isaiah 45 and 7. I went through this the other day. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. Now, God means exactly what He said. Most people don't even read the context of this. The context of this comes from the 44th chapter where, where Cyrus is coming from from over here in Persia, that's what we call Iran, Iraq, uh, not Iran, not Iraq, called Iran or Pakistan or Afghanistan. That was that was Persia in the old world, <clears throat> and he was coming over here to attack Babylon, and he had to go above Babylon because Babylon straddled the river Euphrates and they said we are too we are too strong you can't conquer us we got these 380 foot walls high and we got a river that goes around us that's the Euphrates and these walls are they go down about 380 feet into the water so they said we're unconquerable <clears throat> they had one problem this river the river Cyrus goes over here blocks the river puts sends it out into the into the Arabian desert and you know how much river you can put in the Arabian desert when it's millions of square miles you can put all the water you can put in there and so he runs the water out in the desert the river dries up and they are dead meat for Cyrus he walks, walks his men down the river. There's two-leaved gates that God saw that they left open. He comes in here and kills Belshazzar. And that's when God says, I created this evil in the mind of Cyrus to do that. When you read the 13th chapter by Isaiah, it says these, these Persian soldiers came in and raped the women, killed and slaughtered people. God said, I did that. People don't like the idea that God creates evil. You know why? They think evil is sin every time it's done. It's not. When God causes evil people, evil people, to scourge us, David said, Deliver me from the wicked, which is thy sword and thy hand. Wicked men are the sword in the hand of God. They're going to scourge us, the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, He scourges every son He receives. The scourge was a, it's actually in the text, it was a leather whip with people, places of glass and bone, and it was a, usually nine strips of leather. And they call that that nine strips of leather 
And they call it the cat of nine tails. Cat of nine tails. That's what they beat Jesus with. That's what they beat Jesus with. When right before they crucified him, most men couldn't take that. God says, I'll beat you with an inch of your life. God has beat me that way. Has it beat you that way? Boy, he beat the living tar out of me. Put me in the hospital, gave me two heart attacks, gave me triple bypass surgery and one heart attack, gave me a stroke. He has beat me half to death. If he beats you, that's what he's supposed to do if you're one of his elect. The world gets by with sin. Their eyes are full of adultery. They can do what they want. There's no bands in their living death. Not you and I. We can't do that. He'll beat us within beat us with one of these scourges. And that's what he said. He scourges mastics. Mastics. Scourge comes from mastigo, M-A-S-T-I-G-O-O. So when evil men beat us, that is to get our attention and to cause us to be holy. So the evil they do to us is for our good. Get it? (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to get a hold of that, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now, i got to give you these examples. I want you to see this. There's three places I really think of. Job, the first chapter, and the second chapter, and the last chapter of Job, the last chapter. I think of, I think of first Kings, the 22nd chapter, And I think when I'm talking about God creating evil, these chapters tell you that He emphatically does evil. He creates it for our good. Every time we get beat by some evil man, God's got those evil men fitted for destruction. They're vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. So they're useful to God and they're for our good. We know that all things work together for good. When the Bible says that in Romans 8 and 28, people quote that. Every Baptist preacher in America will quote that. And we know that all things work together for good. To who? Not to everybody. To them that love God. To them that love God. To them who are the called. There's a particular people are they called the Ecclesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Let me move this thing here. The Ecclesia is the called. That's the word church. Church. Ek. Kaleo. Ek means out. We get our word exit on that door right there from that. Ek means out. Kaleo means to call. So God has called out. The ones that are called out, all things work together for good. See, when people quote that, they don't look at the verses before. To them that love God, that is the word. Or love is the word A-G-A-P-E-O. It is the word agapao. It is the verb form of the noun agape. Those that agape God. 
Agape, you got two words for love in the Greek. You have the word phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O. And you have the word agape. They are not the same word. I don't care what preacher says they are. They are not. John MacArthur says you move one for the other. You cannot, John. Agape was a relationship that kings had for their subjects. King for subjects. Fathers had for their families. If they loved them, they gave them laws. And they willingly walked in them. If you love your father and you love your king, he gives you laws and you willingly walked in them. 2 John 6 says this is love. Or we could say that word love is agape. Agape equals couldn't you just put it that way? You could do it that way. This is love, or agape equals this is love that we walk after His commandments. You say, Jim, I don't always want to walk after God's commandments. I know that. It takes God a long time to get your attention to walk into most of them. But you'll be seeking His commandments most of your life, even if you lived wrong when you were young, just like I did. This word phileo means to like. When the Bible says God is love, that word phileo means to like or have affection for. And phileo, we get the word philos, which means affection for friends. Jesus said, you are my friends under one condition, that you do what I say. Wait a minute, do what I say would be agape. He says, my friendship to you has to do with whether you will be obedient to me. I'll only be your friend if you will obey me. And boy, that's what takes a good beating. God beats us for that. He teaches us. So, so phileo, you can like God, like you can like to get drunk, like to drink, like drugs, like your dog, like your wife, like your car, like your house, you can like anything. Don't mean nothing. If you want God to like you, you've got to obey Him. God won't be your friend unless you obey Him. <clears throat> now, so when He said, I create evil, He's saying, I create evil when he said all things work together for good. I got to put this in here. All things for good. He says, and, and, and we know. And is a conjunction. It's a coordinating conjunction. A coordinating conjunction coordinates or connects what is being said to what has been said. Now, what has been said? Go back over there to Romans. Go back to Romans 8. And this, you can't use that verse unless you show the verses before it. And what it's talking about. Romans 8. 
And we'll read that. <clears throat> Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, that agape Him, <clears throat> to them who are the called, the ecclesia, the church. It only works together for good for the church. What is he talking about? What things? What things work together for good? He's talking about some things before this. He says up here in in verse, I love verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, but not willingly. Vanity is the word matautes, M-A-T-A-I-O-T-E-S, M-A-T-A-I-O-T-E-S. It means futility. Everything's futile. You were made subject to vanity. Inutility, it has no purpose. But not willing, but by reason of... Let's put, instead of Him, let's put God. But by reason of God who hath subjected the same, or Adam, in hope. So Adam was made subject to sin, but it wasn't Adam's will for it. And then he starts in, talks about groaning. But we know, look at verse 22. But we know that the whole creation groaneth. That's the creature that was made subject to vanity. Creature and creation come from the same word. Ketesis, K-T-S-I-S. K-T-S-I-S. That's the creature of the creation. Men that are not born again are not a creation. They are chaos. For we know that the whole creation groaneth. I love that. That word groaneth is the word stenos. The whole creation stenos. Or stenos, excuse me. Not stenos, it comes from stenos. Stenozo. That, see, if people would teach the parts of speech, people would better understand it. This word stenozo comes, it is the verb form. It's the word groaneth. And the way you can explain groaneth, you get the noun form of it. The noun form of stenazo is stenos. This is the noun. This is the verb form of the noun. This is the thing. This is the doing. That's groaneth. So stenos is the word straight is the gate. Straight is the gate. And narrow is the way. So when you're going through the narrow way, narrow is a word that means to crowd. It's the word thalit, T-H-L-I-B-O. It is a form of the word thalipsis. And thalipsis, thalibo would be the verb form and the noun form of thalibo, narrow, would be thalipsis. That's the common word tribulation. So when you're going through the narrow way, you're going through tribulation that God has put you into, that scourge, so He can get rid of the outer man. 
And that's the tribulation or the narrow, the straight gate and the narrow way. Straight means to crowd through a narrow opening where you're crowded on all sides. And the world doesn't like what you're saying. All sides. So when you find this word groan or groaning, it's talking about the straight and the narrow way. And only a few find this narrow way. Few there be that find it. In Matthew seven thirteen and 14. So, so let's look at some more of these. All through here, this has to do with all things working together for good. It has to do with the groaning that we're going through. It takes a long time for God to cause us to groan to get over ourselves. The, I, my problem has not been the people that have done me wrong. My problem has been me. And your problem has been you. So you can get over yourself. It took God a long time to beat me up. He beat me year after year. I woke up in the hospital in Hendersonville and I said, Lord, you're going to kill me if I don't behave myself. And I don't stop this. And I was in my mid-40s. I'd preached all over America when I was young. And then I ended up singing in clubs all over America, military bases everywhere. I know it's in nightclubs. Nobody here can tell me anything about it. Nothing. I've been in more clubs than everybody here put together. Hundreds of them. You know what's there? Sin. Nothing else but sin. Now, let's go back to this. And he says... And we know that, verse 22, we know that all creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, for which we have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan, stenazo. You're going through the straight and the narrow way. And it's hard. It's supposed to be. That's why all things work together for good. All this that you're going through is for your good. Verse 23, Not only they, but ourselves also. And we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, or that is to say, the redemption of these bodies that we live in. Get me out of this, Lord. At 82, I really look forward to going to be with the Lord. For we are saved by hope, and hope that is seen is not hope. Hope is the word El Penzo. It's the same word. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It means to depend on a promise that has been made by God. It doesn't mean I hope I get a new car. And I hope I win the lottery. That's not hope. That's wishing. Hope means to depend on promises that have already been made by God. You can depend on eternal life. You can depend on He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He may take away everything you've got to get your attention, but He will. So, His groaning and all that we're going through, is that misery? Yeah. Have you ever been sad because of what you're going through? Well, you're supposed to be. 
We just don't understand that, do we? In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When life goes awry, it's supposed to. Everything that happens is the will of God, including the evil. And these men are creating this evil that's causing your groaning. And then he says down here in 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we ought to pray for as we ought. Pray, prosuke, means to bow to the will of God. You don't know what to pray for. Sometimes I go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know what to ask you anymore. Just, God, fight my battles. I, I can't fight them anymore. i got so many enemies out there that want to kill me and destroy me and destroy this ministry. You can't destroy. I'm looking in the camera. If you're out there, you can't destroy this ministry. God started and he'll stop it when he wants it to stop. If you're attacking the man of God, and I believe I am the man of God here, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe I was. If you're attacking the man of God, God will get you for that. He might kill you for that. And then he says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. You have have a hard time with that. For the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings. With groanings is the word stenogmos. It's a form of stenazo. Stenogmos. It's a form of stenazo. It makes groanings with intercession. Intercession doesn't mean we're going to make intercession for you. We're going to pray for you and pray that God will get you out of your problems. That's not intercession. God makes intercession. Man does not. It's crazy what people say they have. We have an intercessory group. And we're going to, we get together and we pray that God will change everything that's going on in people's lives. That's not intercession. The New Testament Greek word intercession is the word paga. Excuse me. It's the Old Testament is the word paga. The New Testament word intercession is E-N-T-U-G-C-H-A-N-O. Both of these, that's in the Hebrew. This is in the Greek. They both have the same meaning. It means to impinge or to stop progress I use it this way I illustrate this way if you're down here on the corner of Gallatin Road and you're at New Shackle Island and you're pulling up here you're in your car you're in your car and you're running down the road here and you see a car just about to come out here and it's going to run into this little child who's walking across the street. It means to take your car and hit and bump that car and make it go another direction. It means to stop progress. Only God does that. God makes intercession. Then he says, with groanings which cannot be uttered, And then he goes on to say, He that searches his hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It's all according to his will. And all that intercession that's going on, 
it hurts. Then he says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are the called according to his purpose. Then we hit that big verse. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. He put us through all that intercession, through all the groaning, through the straight gate and the narrow way, to the groaning, to the straight gate, stenos gate, so that we will groan as we're going through all these things. And what that will do will conform us to the image of Christ. It will conform us, and it gets into Romans 8.29. And he says, For whom he did foreknow. Whom? He did foreknow. The whom is a reference back to that verse that says the creature was made subject but not willingly. He was made subject to vanity but not willingly. It wasn't His will. Those are God's creatures or His creation. That is the whom whose there's no H's. There's a diacritical mark. That is a breathing sound. Whom it did foreknow. He also did predestinate. Foreknow, P-R-O-G-I-N-O-S-K-O, to know intimately beforehand. Those are the ones he did prohorizo. Everything in this chapter is taught building up to Romans 8 and 29. He, whom he foreknew, he knew intimately beforehand. Whom whom is masculine gender plural? It is not what he foreknew. He did know what. He knew all the what's that's going to happen. How did he know all the what's? He's ordained it all from the beginning to the end. He's ordained everything. So if he's ordained everything, yeah. Each one of y'all can identify with what I'm saying. He's made your life difficult, hasn't he? Somewhere along the way. Hasn't he? If he hadn't, you're not a human being. You're just some animal that crawled in here. You've gone through the same things that I've gone through. All believers go through this. If preachers would quit telling people, God's got a good life and a wonderful life for you, and you've had a good life, and isn't it wonderful being saved and being... It's, this is don't feel good, this groaning we're going through. It's evil people that are doing us wrong, and we've done people wrong. We had to learn not to do that. We've had to learn everything in our life if we're growing up, don't we? Did anybody here grow up? Was anybody here a little kid? Do you know anything you didn't know when you were a little kid? Know a lot, don't you? So, so the groaning has to do with whom he did for no. He also did pro horizo, pro before bound. But that's not a simple boundary. That word horizo is our word. Horizon. It means predetermined for the light. 
He said, you were darkness, but now you're light. And the Lord walked as children of light. So he's predestined us to be conformed. What is conforming us is all this groaning that we're going through this straight and narrow way. If you go through enough experiences in life as a believer, you quit the old life and you very gradually grow into the new life, don't you? Haven't you been doing that? It's been a very long, slow process, hasn't it? You can't wake up one day and say, I'm saved now and I've got it all together. Nobody has it all together when they first start believing. It's a long process. It's like saying, hey, well, I got to college now. I've got my degree. When did you start in college? Yesterday. We have no degree. Don't tell people that. If you were saved yesterday, it's a long journey. I love being where I am. I like being 82. Gosh, I was so frustrated at 30. I was a basket case at 35. I was nuts. People thought I was crazy. And I did not. I wasn't a public speaker in high school. I didn't like to give book reports. I'd like to go back and give a book report now. I wouldn't let the class out for an hour, hour and a half. I'd say, you're going to listen to what i got to say. But I'd be preaching the Bible to them. So, We've been predestined to be conformed. To be conformed is a noun. Well, it don't look like a noun to me. It doesn't. It's called an infinitive. An infinitive is a verbal noun. Every every verb Predestinate is an action verb. Every action verb has to have a direct object. A direct object receives the action of the verb. If I say Jim threw the ball, ball would be the direct object. It would receive the action of throw, just like to be conformed receives the action of the verb predestinate it receives the action so there's an action that happens to us to be conformed that's why we're going through all this groaning that has to do with the straight and the narrow way because groan is a form of straight it's just stenazo if preachers would tell people about objects and prepositions and the reason you didn't understand some teacher in school because she wasn't a good teacher, that's all. Most of the English I teach you is what I learned in 1953-54 in high school. That's when I learned it. This is not college English, I'm telling you. It's real simple. Except when I say stenazo is a noun. Oh, you are. I never heard of a noun named stenazo. What if car? What if I said car? That's a noun. So, to be conformed, and what's going to conform us is all of this groaning where these evil people are scourging us. And God is in charge of all the evil scourging. 
how's he going to make us behave if he don't pick up a whip and whip us with it? God cannot touch evil, but he's got a servant that can. His name is Satan. And we are predestined to conform to his image. E-I-K-O-N. That is our word, I-C-O-N. An icon is a representative. An icon of rock and roll music is Elvis or Little Richard or Fats Domino. Now, I know y'all probably don't remember all those, but I do. Or any of the modern people today. The Jacksons, that's an icon. Michael Jackson would be an icon. An icon of the presidency would be Dwight D. Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Bill Clinton. Those are icons, representatives. I don't particularly trust them or like them, but they are icons. So that's represent. So the reason we are predestined to conform is because it all works together for good on the previous verse. All of what? All the groaning, the straight and the narrow way that we're going through. It's all for our good. I don't wrestle with things the way I used to. You know why? 82, that's why. you got to get... If everybody can get to be in your 60s, say 65, 68, a lot of the worry goes away because you realize I've lived two-thirds of my life or three-fourths of my life and I ain't no need stressing over anything anymore. Don't you get there? You know that. If I stress over something, all it does is make me sicker. Now, now this is nothing but God's hand in things. Go over here to Job. Go to Job, the first chapter. Does God create evil? He said, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Job comes to the Lord and he says, God says to um, Satan comes to, to the Lord. I don't know how he came to him, what kind of entity. But he comes to God. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? How he's the richest of all the men of the East and he escheweth evil. And Satan says, well, there's no wonder he does that. You built a hedge around him. You give him all this money and you made him holy and righteous and he don't have to wrestle with nothing. Satan said, you turn him over to me. And he said, he'll curse you and die. And God says to Satan, all right, he's in your hand. But here is my conditions on you. You're nothing but an instrument in my hand. You cannot touch his life and you can't touch his body. You got that, Satan? And he says, yes, sir. So he goes after Job. And he's going to destroy all of his wealth. And listen what God does. Nat says, And there was a day, verse 13, Job 1, when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and there came a messenger unto Job and said, the oxen were plying and the asses feeding beside them. Now you can read about Satan's conversation right before this. <clears throat> and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. This is the oxen and the asses. They steal all of Job's cattle. Yea, and they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I'm the only one escaped alone to tell you these things. 
And while he was yet speaking, there was another said, the fire of God fell from heaven. Notice it doesn't say the fire of Satan. It says the fire of God fell from heaven. That ought to give you a signal there, What who's doing this. The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell you about it. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants. Job was losing everything. With the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was still speaking, there also came another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the corners of the house and fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. Now, who did the winds belong to? If you look at the fourth, if you look at the thirty-seventh chapter of Job, you go over the thirty-seventh chapter, and Job will tell you who the winds belong to. Job thirty-seven. Let's go back to thirty-seventh chapter of Job. All right. Here's what the Bible says about the winds and the snow. 37. This is And this also my heart trembled and has moved out of his place. And here tended with the noise of God's voice and sound that goeth forth out of his mouth. He directs it under the whole heaven and his lightning. The lightnings belong to God. His is a possessive pronoun. He owns the lightning unto the ends of the earth. If lightning bolt strikes a house and sets it on fire, God did it. And after it, a voice roareth, and he thundereth with the voice of his excellency, and he will not stay them when his voice is heard. God thundereth marvelously with his voice, and great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. God does everything. For he saith to the snow, God talks to the snow, Be thou on the earth. You say, but it takes so much condensation at certain levels for snow to fall. Who do you think manipulates the condensation of the weather? That's God. So he says, snow, and he speaks the physics and the chemistry to the air, and it operates the way he wants it to. Likewise, the small rain, that belongs to God, and the great rain, when there's a flood, and people are flooded out down in Louisiana. That's God doing that. He sealeth up the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Then the beasts go in their dens and remain in their places. And out of the south cometh the whirlwind and the cold out of the north. By the breath of God, frost is given. It's not word frost, it's actually ice in the Hebrew. Ice is given. So when people get caught in an ice storm, we got a lot of them done in Texas. That's gone. 
I was traveling down to Texas on a trip one time, and I left Memphis, and it was solid ice all the way to Arkansas, all the way to Little Rock. Solid ice. We were driving about 10 miles an hour. And the guys that was with me said, we ought to stop. I said, we've got to keep going. We've got to go to that show down there. And then he says, out of the south cometh the whirlwind. The tornadoes belong to God. It comes a whirlwind and cold out of the north. When you get a freeze out of the north, that belongs to God. By the breath of God, frost is given. And the breath of the waters is straightened also by watering the weary's breath, the thick cloud, he scattereth his bright cloud. And it is turned round about by God's counsels. When you see a storm coming, that's God. There's nothing to do with the devil. Don't you think that's Satan? Turned around by his counsel that they may do whatsoever. He commanded them upon the face of the whole earth. He causeth it to come, whether for correction or for the land or just for His mercy upon people and give them rain so they can have a crop. Or it may be a correction. He may put you through a flood and through a... I've been in a... I was in a uh, blizzard in North Dakota in about 1973. They say it was the worst blizzard in a 100 years there. And the winds were 55 miles an hour. And it was 40 below zero. It was about 60 below wind chill factor. It was the scariest thing I've ever been in my life. I went out to the motor home I was in. I said, I think I'll step away a couple of steps and see what it's like. All of a sudden, I started losing my balance. I grabbed the motor home, went back up to my room, and they, the people that own motels had to feed their guests when something like that hit. They had to have electric dipsticks because your oil would freeze up. They had electric dipsticks for their cars that they plugged in to keep the oil from becoming sludge. That's frightening. I've been in a in a hurricane. Hurricane doesn't even doesn't get close to a blizzard like that. Anyway, so he's talking about all through here. And he says in verse 19, Teach us what we shall say unto God, for we cannot alter our speech by, return, by reason of darkness. We're so dark inside ourselves, we don't even know how to talk to God. And I love what he says over here in the... Well, he says in verse 8 of chapter 38, Who shut up the sea with its doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb. What God? What does God do to make the sea? It's God that does it. And he says over here in... He says over here in chapter 38, Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow? He's talking to Job. Verse 22, Or hast thou seen the treasures of the of the hail which I have reserved against the time of trouble, I reserved it. Satan didn't reserve those things against the day of battle and war. And he says down here in verse 29, out of whose womb came the ice? Out of mine. God says that come from me. 
And the hoary frost, the gray frost, the gray ice is what it says, of heaven. Who hath gendered it? Who hath borne this ice? I did that. And the waters are hid with the stone, and the base of the deep is frozen. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades, Job? That don't mean anything unless you understand the Pleiades. The Pleiades was the seven stars that came out in the spring. And the rabbis said the Pleiades brought the crops up in the spring. God says, I can stop the crops from blooming in the spring, Job. Who has... He says, I can bind the sweet influences of Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion. They said Pleiades was the seven stars and they said that it that the Pleiades would bring forth the crops. Famine was one of God's first judgments. When you don't, when you're not obedient to God, He brings famine. And He said, who can loose the bands of Orion? They said Orion was the evening star in the winter and that that drew the sap down in the vine. It's not whether Orion actually did that or what Pleiades did, what they did. That's what the rabbis said. So God uses their customs to tell them. I can loose the bands of Orion. They said Orion took the sap out in the spring. What God is saying, I'll get you into January, and you'll be in January the the 22nd. Then I can bring a warm front, and it'll get real warm, and the crocuses will start blooming, and the daffodils will start blooming, and I'll hit you with a freeze and kill your crops. That's what God is saying. I can loose the hands around and I'll kill your crops. You'll have nothing come the, come the spring. Famine was one of God's first judgments. The sword, the famine, the pestilence, and the beast was God's four judgments. He says, this is how I bring this. And then he goes on to say, Job, can you bring forth Maseroth in his season? Maseroth is the same thing that we call the Zodiac. I have much to say about the Zodiac and the Maseroth. don't have time now. Then he says, the reason he's saying these things to Job is his Job had said, I am innocent. God said, nobody ever perished being innocent. No one. We've all been under the judgment hand of God if you're one of the believers. Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds, and that abundance of the waters may cover thee? I do that, Job. Canst thou send lightnings that they may go forth and say unto thee, Lightning's reporting for duty. Here we are, sir. Where shall we strike? What a God that we have. He said, the lightnings are mine and they report to me. Say, where do you want me to strike? You want me to hit this man on this golf course like he did some years ago up here in Gallatona Golf Course. Struck a man and killed him dead right on the spot. That was God. That wasn't Satan. I don't know the man's name. I just remember it happening. I love that. 
Did you know we have to have so many lightning bolts throughout the world to keep the world in its orbit? You know what lightning bolts are? One of the writers said, lightning bolts are like those leads you put on a tire when you're balancing a tire. You have to put it over here and over here and over here, and it balances the tire. The lightning bolts are what helps balance the earth and keeps it in exact orbit where it's going. And then he says down here, and I like this in verse 39, Well, if I hunt the prey for the lion or fill the appetite of the young lions, I do that. I tell them when they can eat. I'll send a gazelle out in front of them. Say, there's your dinner, Mr. Cheetah. He'll run out there and chase it down, and he's got his food. When they couch in their dens and abide in the covert of or lie in wait. Who provideth for the raven his food? I do that, Job. When his young ones cry to God, they wonder for lack of meat. I do that too. God is saying through Job, I do everything. Now let's get back to Job, that first chapter. So after everything, the Bible says the great wind from the wilderness came and smoked the four corners of the earth and fell upon the young men, and they are dead. Only I am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and did something magnificent. Job arose, rent his mantle, he ripped his clothes. They did that when they were in mourning, and shaved his head and fell down on the ground and worshipped God. And then he said these wonderful words. And Job said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord hath given and the Lord hath taken away. He did not give Satan one ounce of credit for what happened to him. And I want you to notice what it says. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And look at the last verse. Now you're going from Job speaking back to the Bible speaking. And here's what the Bible says about what happened to Job. And all of this, Job sinned not with his lips, nor charged God foolishly. The Bible itself says when Job said, I took away, he told the truth, he did not charge me with something I did not do. Charge is the word nathan. N-A-T-H-A-N. means to ascribe or to blame. Now I got spelled it wrong. Ascribe. Or blame God with something He did not do. This says, God is telling the truth. of. He said, Job tells the truth about me. I did all of this. Was that evil? Was that evil when the Sabians came in and stole all of his camels? When all of his enemies came in and killed all his servants? They were murdering his servants. Was that evil? And Job said, God did the evil. Now, people don't like that. 
what you don't like, you think God is a sinner because God did evil. God does evil. Let me add something to that. For our good. (laughs) That's why He does evil. Now, here's the law here. Man is under the law because of sin. That's what Galatians says. It's because of transgressions. God is not under the law. God is above the law. He kills who He wants to. He brings storms and ices people into places and freezes them to death. And You can go into all the situations of the world. That's God's doing. Now, and all this sin... Not with lips, nor charge God with something He didn't do. Me to accuse God of something that He did not assign. God didn't. When Job said God took away, He was giving no credit to Satan. All this evil, all this murder of His servants was from God. What really amazes me, it says the fire of God fell from heaven. Satan was nothing but a servant of God in this and every other situation he's in in life. Now, look at the second verse, second chapter. And again, there came a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before God. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his, fast his integrity, although thou movest him against Movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, a man will do anything to save his own skin. Yea, all that man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but don't you touch his life. Do you understand? Yes, sir. So, when Satan, went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job, sore balls from the sole of his foot unto the crown of his head. And this had to be something that was hurting bad. And he took him a potsherd and scraped himself with all. A potsherd is a piece of pottery that's been broken that's good for nothing. They would use it to scrape things with. He was scraping these balls on his body as they were festering. And he sat down among the ashes. Then his wife comes up and says something crazy to him. And he tells her that. Job's wife said unto him, Dost thou retain thine integrity? She knew who did this. She said, Curse God and die. She didn't say curse Satan. And Job answered her, 
Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaks. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not also receive evil at His hand? And I love the last verse, the last sentence of verse 10. It matches up with verse 22 of chapter 1. And all this did not Job sin with his lips. That's the Bible talking there. That's God's talking. It's the same thing as all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly in verse 22 of the previous chapter. And the Bible says, And all this Job sinned not with his lips. Now, there's three, Job has three associates all through this book. And they come to him and they say, You must have done something wrong and you must have been guilty of something. And they come to him, say these things to him. Their name was Zophar. These were his friends. Bildad. And Eliphaz. Eliphaz. And they said, Job, you must have done something wrong. And they rebuked him. They said, something has to be wrong with your life. When things get tough, you blame somebody that's going through tough life. It's your fault. What did you do against God? That's what they did. God corrected them real hard. They said some true things. Eliphaz made a statement. He said, whoever perished being innocent, you have perished completely, Job. You can't be innocent. It wasn't up to theirs to correct Job. There was a young man, a young preacher named Elihu, E-L-I-H-U. Elihu corrected them and said, I'll listen to what you have to say. He listened to all three of them. Then he said, you need to understand that what a man goes through is of God. That's not your business to correct him. Well, by the end of the book, God corrects all these three friends of Job. They're repentant. Let's go to the last chapter. The last chapter. This shows you that God did the evil at the hand of evil men. Last chapter, chapter 41, chapter 42, excuse me. <clears throat> Look at verse 9. How much time do I have, Mike? 30. I'm going to keep on in this subject till we exhaust this thing. Does God create evil? You bet your life He does. In chapter 40, verse 9, So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did according as the Lord commanded them. And the Lord accepted Job. He commanded them to go and pray for Job and take offerings to Job for what they had done and been evil themselves. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all of his brethren and all of his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him, and notice what it says, 
and they comforted Job over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. They comforted him over the evil that God had brought. And people say, God, don't create evil. You haven't, most of you people that say that, you haven't read the Old Testament. If you read it, read it very slow and you'll see over and over and over again how God creates evil. Now, I want to go to another subject. You can see that in Job. It was God doing the evil. I want to go over here to Second Samuel. The 24th chapter. Second Samuel 24. This will show you that God's doing evil. There's nothing in the world that's happening that God's not in charge of. All the evil He's doing is for the good of the believer. It gets you out of your sin. And you quit wanting to blame other people for having... And they won't get over your sin. They won't forgive you for what you did in your past that you've repented of. They won't forgive you. Now look over here in Second Samuel. Second Samuel, the 24th chapter, excuse me. The 24th chapter. And you have to know what this is about. This is at the end of David's life. The next page after Second Samuel 24 is First Kings the first chapter in first kings the first chapter david is dying he's an old man and he is here in the 24th chapter of second samuel david does something that is just unheard of it's ungodly in the 24th chapter david counts his mighty man. And he wants to take credit for all of the wars that he's won. We find out that he's got over a million, approximately a million and a half men in his army. And he brags on those mighty men of valor in the 23rd chapter. 23rd chapter he's boasting about these great men that he's got he includes his two nephews Joab and Abishai Abishai was his constant companion Abishai went everywhere that David went when David got in trouble it was Abishai the one jump up and kill somebody he was a killer he was a guy you didn't mess with if anybody that did he'd kill him and Joab was his nephew who was the head of his army. Joab was an out-and-out murderer. He murdered four men that we know of. And David said, I don't know what to do with these sons of Zeruiah. Zeruiah was his sister. That was David's sister. <clears throat> he had these, she had these two sons. Joab 
and Abishai. And these are two guys you don't want to stir up their anger. They will kill you in a second at the drop of a hat. And David is pulling his hair out at times saying, Oh God, what am I going to do with these sons of Abish, with these sons of Zeruiah? They're driving me nuts. They go out and kill my friends. And then they, rep- they rebuke Joab, rebuke David for mourning over his son Absalom. Just rebuked him. Said, what are you crying over him for? And Joab was, uh, what gets me about Joab, they'll always have a, in a movie, they'll have about David and Bathsheba and they have Joab standing over there saying, yes, David, he wasn't that kind of a servant. He was arrogant, smart, aleck, nasty mouth. Would chew David out in a minute. And he did that. But this was his sons of Zeruiah, his sister. I can't handle them, he said. He tried to replace Joab with another one of his nephews. And he killed him. Joab killed him. said, don't you, Uncle David, you try to put one of them. The thing is, Joab was ahead of the army. David said, whoever goes in and conquers this city, it was a city that later on would be called Jerusalem. Whoever conquers that city when they were a bunch of pagans, you'll be my commanding general. Well, it was his nephew Joab that went in there and conquered him. And he has to make Joab his commander. And boy, Joab is nothing but a headache from then on. He he killed uh, Ab- Abner, a, a good man, a, the leader of Saul's army. It's a long story. But he killed Joab. Uh, he killed Absalom. I'll get it in a minute. He killed uh, Abner and Abner was the kingdom had been split into two kingdoms you had Saul had part of the kingdom and David was the literal literal king God dis, he displaced Saul and replaced him with David but Saul still had followers and Abner was his commander but Abner was a righteous man even though Saul wasn't. And Abner was going to go over here and tell David that he, after Saul was dead, Abner said, I want to give you the whole kingdom. And when he went over to talk to David, uh, Joab saw him and he thought, he's trying to take over my place. So Joab walked up to Abner, put his arm around him, said, hey brother, hold this! And he stabbed him with a, under the fifth rib killed him right there on the spot Abner was a good man so you can expect to get out of Joab whatever he brings he was a pill for David anyway so David is bragging on all these great men in chapter 23 he has forgotten David evidently has forgotten Back in First Samuel, when Saul was chasing David, 
trying to kill him because he thought David had stolen his kingdom. It was God that put David as the king of Israel. Not It wasn't David putting himself as the king. God picked him out when Saul wouldn't obey the commandments of God. And he told, he told the, uh, the prophet, you go down to, to Bethlehem, Judah, told Samuel, go down to Bethlehem, Judah, I've chosen a king among his sons. And come to find out it was the eighth son of Jesse. It was David. And Saul wants to blame David. And so Abner, Saul thought David was trying to steal his throne. Joab thought Abner was trying to take his place. And Abner was a righteous man. David was a good man. And so God has to get rid of Joab along the way. He got rid of Saul. So God will do that to evil men that are trying to run over the righteous men of God. So here's what's wrong. I'm going to make this short. How much time do I have, Mike? Twenty. Twenty. All right. After he's bragged on all these men, I'll read a little bit about that. Uh, where can I start? In chapter 23. Chapter 23. And uh, where do I start here? I don't. I'll start down here in in verse 17. And he said, "Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is it not?" This blood of the men that were in jeopardy of their lives, therefore he would not drink of it. This is where that David pours out the drink off from the Lord that he had Abishai go across the enemy lines to get this water from the deep well. These things did these three mighty men. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief among these three. Abishai was a bad dude. And he lifted up his spear against 300 men and slew them. 300. That shows you the guy was man. And had the name among the three. Was he not most honorable of the three? Therefore, he was their captain. That was Abishai, the brother of Joab. And Abishai was the constant companion of David. He went everywhere David went. When Saul was trapped in a, in a ditch and he was asleep, Abishai, I'll go over and kill him, Uncle David. David said, shut your mouth, Abishai. He is the Lord's anointed. If God wants him dead, God will kill him. That's how brazen they were. Therefore, he was their captain, Howbeit he attained not unto the first three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, he took the place of the number one man in Israel. He was going to lead Israel after Joab was dead. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabziel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. He was a huge man. And he just killed him himself. It was Beniah that that King Solomon would say, Beniah, go fall upon this Joab and kill him. He's called me too much problem in my life. And he goes through and brags on these men. And then in verse 1 of chapter 24, 
Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And God moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Now, God had David number Israel and Judah. That was an evil thing because what David was doing when he numbered them, he was taking credit. He forgot when Saul was chasing him, he only had 400 men to 600 men traveling with him. Now he's got well over a million and a half. And he's bragging on that. God says, it ain't the number of men you've had. So David numbers Israel. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, Joab's a wicked nephew, which was with him. Go now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the northernmost city in Israel. Beersheba at that time was the southernmost city. Go through the whole nation and number the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my Lord the king may see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? How can you delight in how many you've got? That's not what has won you the battle. At one time, David was trapped. David was trapped in a box canyon. Saul had him surrounded And David didn't have a chance of getting out. And a messenger came to Saul that was leading the army against David. David had no way out. And this messenger said, The Philistines are attacking Jerusalem! He said, Let's get out of here. It was more important that they salvage Jerusalem than that David be killed that day. He had no way out. That was God that sent that man. It was God that had the Philistines to attack Jerusalem. Where it works. And then he goes on to say down here. Let's look at verse 9. Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So that's quite a bit of men. That's well over a million men. And David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned, taking credit for all this. I've sinned greatly that I have done. And now beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly to number all the men because it wasn't numbers that you delivered me with earlier in my life. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, God sent this prophet to David to tell him, I'm going to give you a choice of three ways you want me to punish you. Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. What do you think he's going to tell him? Would you like the sword, the famine, or the pestilence that hits you hard? David said, I have to put myself in the hand of God. Choose one of them that I may do it to thee. 
David, you're going to choose your own punishment. How would you like that choice? And Gad said to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? There's one of the judgments. Or will you flee three months before your enemies? That's the sword. So you've got sword and famine listed. Or will there be three days pestilence? There's the sword, the famine, the pestilence. Those are always the first three things that God would bring upon rebellious Israel. And then He would send the beast to carry them away into captivity if they were rebellious so long. And now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. I guess you are, David. (laughs) You're bragging on all the men that brought you through this and it wasn't the number of men, it was God. I am in a great strait. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. We'll take three days pestilence. And let me not fall into the hand of man. I don't want to be chased by my enemies. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning. Who sent the pestilence? God. God sent it. Even to the time appointed, and there died of people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men simply because Dave wanted the credit, and he numbered Israel. But God caused him to. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy every man in Jerusalem, this must have been Michael the death angel. He stretched out his hand, he's going to kill everybody in Jerusalem. Then the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the death angel that destroyed the people, that's enough, I've killed enough people. Your job's over. This evil that came upon Jerusalem was of God. That's all there is to it. It is enough. Stay now thine hand, Michael. Michael is the death angel that killed 185,000 men in one night in Second Kings, the 19th chapter. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aronah, the Jebusite. And David got convicted in my heart, his heart and said, I have sinned. And he tells Aronah, I need your threshing floor to offer sacrifice unto God. And Aronah says, no, I'll give it to you for free. And David said, no. And I love David's words. And the king said unto Aronah, no. Verse 24. But I will surely buy it from thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. He says, you can't worship God when it don't cost you. Now, that ought to hit all of us. You can't hear all these words and not support this ministry. If you're being taught, let a man communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. That's where your offering goes, where you learn.
now. Do I have any time, Mike? Ten. Ten. I don't think I can get through this, but go to Second Kings, uh, First Kings, the twenty-second chapter. First Kings, the twenty-second chapter. I may have to do this next week. God is doing all the evil that's out there. There's no evil that God's not doing. Maybe I could just read some more of these. I did this paper. Does God create evil? Well, he said he did. There's two words for evil in the Scripture. And they come from the basic same word. One is the word raw. The other is the word raw. They both come from the same word. They mean evil, worthless. When people say they they want to they want to excuse God from doing evil, so they say when the Bible says God creates evil, no, He does exactly that. But He creates evil for our good. He put us all in these sinful bodies. When people will go there, what they'll do, they'll go over there to James, the first chapter, and say, well, the Bible says that God's not tempted to do evil. That word tempted is the word parosmos. God is not tempted to evil. Is He tempting us? Yes. He's tempting us to good. That's we know that all things work together for good. He's tempting us for good. Did He tempt Abraham? He said, go and, he said, go and offer your son Isaac upon Mount Moriah. That's where they finally built Jerusalem and built the temple on Mount Moriah. He said, go offer Isaac in Mount Moriah. God wasn't going to accept a offering of a human being. But Abraham said, he said, Isaac said, Father, he said, where's the offering? And Abraham said, God will supply an offering. And he tied up Isaac and put him on the altar. This is in the 22nd chapter, or 24th chapter of Genesis. And he said, and he tied him up and he raised the dagger to stab Isaac, he didn't hesitate and say, you, you sure you want me to do this, God? I don't believe there was one ounce of hesitation in his hand. He's going to plunge the dagger through Isaac. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 chapter that God had already raised Isaac from the dead in a figure and he could do it again. Abraham knew if he killed him, he said, I'm going to bless the world through this one son. He knew he would raise him from the dead because he had already raised him from the dead womb of his mother and the dead loins of his father. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Sarah was 90 years old when he was born. She didn't ovulate anymore. He didn't have any sperm anymore, no more seed. He said, you're going to have a son when Abraham was 99. When Sarah was 89. And he said, okay. I'm too old, but if you say it, that's what I'll do. I'll have a son. And he had Isaac. So he knew that God would raise him again from the dead. 
So he told the men that were staying with the mules, they all went up to Mount Moriah. He looked at them and he said, Man, my son will return again. That's when God prepared a ram in the bushes. Everything is God's will. Everything that's going on in the world is the will of God. We have to learn that. I'm going to go through this in First Kings. This takes me too much time. It shows you the evil that God does in the life of Ahab. God told Ahab, He said, because you've sinned, you killed Naboth, the Jezreelite. You killed him for no reason. He was a righteous man. He said, your blood's going to be it's going to be spilled by this altar up here in northern Israel where you killed where you killed uh, Naboth. So in the 22nd chapter of 2 Kings, Ahab wants, he doesn't want to go into battle not without, uh, excuse me, Jehoshaphat didn't want to go to battle. Ahab is the king of northern Israel at this time. And the king of southern Judah is Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's a good guy. Ahab is evil. Ahab, but Ahab was a believer. How in the world that happened? I don't know. So this, this is Israel. This is southern Israel, or Judah. Judah. And this is northern Israel. And Ahab is the king up here. And Jehoshaphat's the king down here. Jehoshaphat's good. Ahab is wicked to the core. He's a murderer, a liar. And he marries Jezebel from Lebanon up here. What we call Lebanon, it was Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. And when he marries her, he brings her God's Baal in the grove down here. Grove. And he goes to Naboth and says, you've got a garden, you've got some land that's next to my palace. It'll make me a good garden of herbs and I'll give you a price of the land. I'll give you more than what it's worth. It was against God's law for them to sell or give the land away. They belonged to all the tribes. And Naboth said, I can't do this. And Jezebel, his wife, and and Ahab went home and fell down on his bed and started crying and I don't like it. He won't sell me my that land. And Jezebel heard him and said, What's wrong? She said, Naboth won't sell me his land for a garden of herbs. I told him I'd give him more than his worth for it. I'd trade him whatever he wanted for it. And he won't do it. And she said, I'll get it for you. Jezebel was a witch. That's why Jezebel and Ahab, when they birthed a daughter, she was a witch of witches. That was Athaliah. That woman was godless. You want her to go to hell as soon as you start reading about her. And But Ahab was... So God says, you're going to, the dog's going to lick your blood. So when he goes into battle, he goes to a prophet. Jehoshaphat said, I'm not going into battle without talking to a prophet. So they go to talk to this prophet. And this prophet is a godly man. 
And he tells Ahab, you're going to battle, you're going to die. And Ahab said, I don't like to go to these prophets. They're always saying bad things about me. I guess they do. You're a bad man. So he said, I'll go to my own prophets. So he went to one of the priests of Baal. And he said, you can go into battle and everything will be okay. So he goes into battle and he tells Jehoshaphat, let me and you change clothes. <laughs> I don't know what Jehoshaphat's thinking of to change clothes with Ahab. Because he thinks if they see you, they'll think it's me and they'll kill you and they'll think they killed me. So they go into battle. And Jehoshaphat trades clothes with him. The enemy, as they're attacking, come. they catch Jehoshaphat with Ahab's clothes. And they say, you're not the guy we want. They let him go. And about this time, a man draws a bow at a venture. It means an upright T-A-M-I-Y-M. means an upright bow. And the guy fires the bow as Ahab is going into battle. And as he's going into battle, the man with the bow is somewhere over on the side. They're over here attacking Ben-Hadad. And somehow, God performs what's called a parabola. That's a term in mathematics that means a curve. And he makes this curve, and this guy fires the arrow at exact time, and it goes over, and Ahab is in his chariot going at a certain speed across the desert. And that parabola is its a mathematical term. And it strikes, it strikes Ahab between the harness. He had to be going at an exact speed. And that man with the bow had to draw that bow in exact pounds, maybe 12, 13.46 pounds of bow. And it went into a curve and it came down on Ahab and struck him in between the harness, killed him. He said, I am struck. And he drives his chariot up to the same place as prophesied by Elijah. I rode it up to the same place where they had killed Naboth. And Elijah said, the dogs are going to lick your blood in the same place they licked the blood of Naboth. Who do you think planned that out? God planned for that bowman to kill Ahab. And the man didn't even know that he was doing that. And Ahab didn't know he was driving at the exact speed he was driving at. It's amazing. I'm out of time. I haven't finished this God creating evil by any means. I want to come back to this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for truth. Lord, you fight our battles. I can't fight them anymore. I will not. You told me to rely upon you. You deal with these people that want to destroy this ministry. Lord, they're not fighting me. They're fighting you. Open up many doors for the ministry. You've opened up a lot of TV and a lot of Internet. Continue to do that. We'll praise you for Christ's name. Amen.
I'm going to continue in this. Does God create evil? There's all kinds of things through the Old Testament showing that He said He created evil. You don't have to believe it. But you don't have to go to heaven either. People only believe this if God convinces their hearts. Hey, Tim. How you doing? Jim, thank you for surviving. Huh? Just surviving. Well, that's what life's about.